Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Edgy Futurist podcast. I think this is episode 223. Is that right? 223? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, uh, it's good to be back after a bit of a summer break, and uh, it's good to be back in the studio having a bit of a discussion, seeing where things are, talking about the future of education. Lads, how have you been? It's been uh, It's been a few months since we last recorded, hasn't it? It's been good. I think I, I forgot what to do. You, we, <laughs> we were just in the, 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 the background area with, with Anna, who's our guest today, and you said something about, oh, I'll play a graphic, and I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, we've got a, we've got a, we've got an animation. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have that Steve, thing we just played. That, is that the always one that I get wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah the thing you press, yeah, wrong time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, all all good. Uh, ben, you how about you? How are you doing? You got a good summer? Yeah, really, really good. Thank you. Lots of uh, downtime with the kiddos. Um, they're all growing up, doing too much. Doing they're out swimming again tonight. So doing, doing to, too much. Doing too much. Them kids, <laughs> my kids, doing Those too kids much. Doing too much. So I said, uh, I was talking to Steve about this the other day. My eldest, who is 12, uh, currently swims eight times a week and does two strength and conditioning classes at the same time. Well, in the same week as well. So she does 10 sessions a week. So she's, um, when we say she's, we, we they do too much, that's what I'm talking about. So yeah, but it's been good. Uh, we've had a really good break. We've got, um, we've been away and spent a bit of quality time with that. And then it's a bit of a refreshing. And as uh, I think we've talked about before, I'm... Or, Almost finished with my first book, so that's been taking up a lot of the time um, over the summer, so I'm looking forward to uh, seeing where that goes as well. So what about you two? How have you been? Uh, well, yeah. you guys, uh, and the announcement is, I know, Dan, you've had your first book, Ben, yours, mine's coming out. Well, it's not coming out. It's, my, it's the first time I've ever read a book. It's a month of firsts. It's the first I was thinking when... Uh, and and I know Anna's in the background listening, but when Steve messaged yesterday saying he, he thought the book was really good, I was like, oh my goodness, Steve's read a book. <laughs> it's amazing, Dan, that people still read books after you wrote and read books with AI. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, let's... Uh, let's I've told you that. not to tell people that. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's been good. I, I turned 40 last week. How old? Um, uh, yeah, 40. Oh I know I look 60. Look at the state of me. I've had a hard day for round. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and for those people who've probably seen on social, um, I damaged my back a couple of days or probably a week before. So I'm a runner. People, I talk about running. I bore people to death. If, you, if you've ever been at a party with me and the person just bores you to death about running, uh, so apologies <laughs> if you've ever been that, that person who's had to listen to me about my marathon that I've just done or I'm just about to do. Uh, but yeah, it's the first race I had to drop out of. My little boy fell, uh, was falling two steps on a trampoline. Probably would have bounced, would have been all right. Uh, but the dad moment was lunge forward, grab him. And the aging man that I am, my back just completely capitulated and uh, heavy drugs for a week. Uh, so Ben saw me in uh, all my glory in Belfast when I was... Not all his glory. Can we just oh. stop it? Not all yeah, just to clarify that one. Just, let's just close you told me you weren't sharing a room. What? It was good. It was good. That's why you opted out, Dan. But, uh, it, it was more entertaining than not seeing Blink. But uh, yeah, but yeah, it was. Yeah, I was. I was in some pain. But uh, it's been a good summer. I've enjoyed it. You know, work's continued through, and the kids are growing up so quick. Uh, mm. That's for sure. Like you know, somebody told me because uh, Ella was my little girl was free, um, and uh, somebody said to me, "Enjoy it." You know, when they're having tantrums and they're kicking off and everything else, and they say, enjoy it, because you only get 18 um, summers with your kids. Mm. And I was like, it's pretty irrelevant. But at the time, my daughter was screaming, so I was like, hopefully, maybe she'll leave home at 16. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I do jest. But yeah, let's, not talk, let's not talk to Dan. Let's not talk to Dan, because he's like, I've been to Dubai, I've been to America, I've been to China. <laughs> <laughs> slab, I haven't been slab. to China. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going, I'm going, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He went to the Chinese with his family and, oh, and had a meal. <laughs> and it's not the same thing, Ben. But a uh, Peru, is it? Dan coming up and I saw that you by the way, no, it's just good. Out, you are the busiest man ever. That that list, that no, it's good. stuff you've done is good, man. It's good. It's no one is good. Yeah. Um yeah, I spent the early part of the summer in Florida doing like a bit of a tour of Florida and then uh Dubai. Bit of a tour of Dubai, uh, which was pretty cool. Very hot, forty-five degrees. So not that cool. <laughs> yeah, you could, you literally couldn't go outside. So I, I didn't see any of Dubai. 
Uh, Florida was lovely. Florida, well, Florida was like 35. Uh, hired a Mustang for Florida. Couldn't even put the roof down. I was absolutely good. Um, then Dubai for... I made it. I made it feel like you should feel sorry for me there. Um, oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. But uh, I feel sorry for you driving your Mustang just play my tiny AI violin. <laughs> I didn't see I literally went from the hotel to a school, back to the hotel, next day to a school, back the, to the hotel. The way I liken the summer in Dubai is a really bad winter in America or, or or in England, where you've got to prep the car, you've got to kind of preheat the car, you've got to put all your. Gear oh, it's on. terrible, Whereas isn't it? Dubai, it's like prepping the car to have air conditioning on. It's just so warm, can't do anything. There's a few times I made the mistake of, you know, the metal bit on this on a seatbelt, like yeah, touching the metal bit. Oh yeah, my goodness! Like, warm, warm, but, uh, wow, wow, we're going to go seatbelt. Just to clarify, our guest has realised that this yeah. is what we do. She's, I, I, she's just about to push the. I think button. she's just left. I think it's just. Oh, <laughs> it's just they normally do. Remember that? Didn't somebody do that? We thought they'd yeah, left. Yeah. And a signal and just cut. We're like, oh my god, yeah. they've, they've got all of us and they've left. But they, they just drop out. But uh, this this person, that's, yeah, let's stop talking. Out. I think they've got their best. They've got their own Wi-Fi connection, uh, a studio, and everything else. It's not yeah. our usual guest. <laughs> Normal guy that lives under the stairs. It's a little bit different. Hi, so, Anna Fabrega. Thank you for for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've been enjoying hearing you guys talk. Uh, have you really? Or are you That's just being really polite? polite. I, you know, I, I was laughing because it's. I, I realized everything's about perspective. When Dan was like, "Yeah, I was in Florida and it was nice. It was thirty-five degrees." I'm like, "Oh my god, that's nice." Here we are all complaining, <laughs> going crazy, and then of course, if you compare it to Dubai, then I guess you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was hot. I went up to Tallahassee at one point, and I made the mistake of going for a walk. After, and I had to be honest. Thank God there was a pub around the corner from my hotel. So I went into the pub, had a cocktail, and it was all good. Anyway, yeah. I bet it was a yeah. I bet it was a fruity one. When I bet it, did you have an umbrella in it and a sparkler? It had a cherry in it. It was a I think it was an old fashioned. Oh. It, yeah, it was nice. Yeah, nice. nice. I, re I really got into cocktails when I was in Florida. I'm not, I'm not really a cocktail person, but okay. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, sorry, I'm taking over the conversation. <laughs> you changed. Just to clarify, Anna, this is Dan's last podcast. He's talking about eating cherries in cocktails. <laughs> And driving around in Mustang. It's just it's just not the northern lad that we know anymore. What's happened to him? Yeah. Brilliant. Well, it's it is really good to have you on the podcast, Anna. We have been trying to do this for about two years, I think we worked it out the other day. It's yeah. been about two years and things things being in the in the mix, being timetables and having a baby. Congratulations on that. Uh, um and then uh, writing a book and all the, the the other stuff second baby so it's like busy 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 um and we are really really glad to finally be able to get you on and discuss primarily today we're going to be talking about your book the learning game which we've all got uh, a copy of and we've read and um looking forward to talking about that but for our listeners who don't know who you are uh, i wonder if you could just give us a little bit of a a, a synopsis about you and uh, and how you came to writing this book yeah, so my name's Anna. I'm originally from Panama, but um, growing up, I moved around a lot. By the time I was 14, I had been to 10 different schools in seven different countries. And so when it comes to school, I like to say that, you know, I've, I've been around the block a lot, <laughs> a few times. And so, um, you know, as I've reflected on my whole journey and how I ended up here, I realized that, you know, going to all these different um, schools and, and moving around so much really sparked that desire to work in education, but then at the same time, it's a springboard for um, wanting to reform and change a lot of the things that we've been doing for a long time. And so um, it's funny because in the book, I talk about the game of school and then the game of learning. And so the game of school is basically what I had to do in all these different schools that I went to growing up in order to keep up with all the academic environments and the expectations. Um, and it was basically all the things that you do in order to appear diligent and attentive um, and not to get in trouble and sort of check the boxes in order to pass to the next grade level. And so I did all that of being quiet, not getting in trouble, not questioning my teacher, you know, knowing when to raise my hand and when not to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was very good at this game, right? I, I got to do it over and over again. I was the new girl times, but I didn't really enjoy it. Um, what I did enjoy was all the things that I could do outside of school, right? And, and that's where real learning was happening for me when I was exploring my interests and really digging deep into the things that I, I wanted to learn more about and I was curious about and nobody kind of like judging me with a grade or telling me, you know, when it's time to close the book and move on to the next thing. 
And so my mom was really good at making sure that I got to explore and do all these things outside of school. And she was what I call the perfect enabler. And so um, whenever I had a productive interest in something, she was like, yes, let's do it. And so I think I grew up with that love for learning that came from outside of school, not necessarily inside school. And I loved working with people. And I had a natural way of explaining things in a way that captured people's attention, according to what I heard growing up. And so I decided I wanted to become an educator. And when I was um, going through my studies um, in college, um, I had to do student teaching in several different placements in New York City, different grades, different schools. And that's when, you know, it dawned on me when I was observing all the students um, that they were all playing the game of school. And I hadn't quite realized that the game was universal. And it was really concerning because these kids did not look excited to learn. These kids did not look like they were retaining any of the information that they were consuming. Um, I didn't see this like spark in their eyes, especially the older ones, you know, um, that you see in little kids, right? If you look at a little kid, um, they're so excited about everything. They want to learn about everything. They have so many questions. They're constantly exploring. They're not afraid to take risks. And then all that kind of starts to get lost as kids enter this structured environments and as they get older, right? And so I started to question a bunch of the things that we were doing. And I was like, but you know what? When I when I become a teacher, I'm going to do things differently in my classroom. And to an extent, I did. Um, I tried to create a student-centered environment. I taught in New York, Panama, and Boston. And, you know, the kids were excited to come to my classroom. They, they seemed to enjoy writing and reading. And, you know, I, I tried to deviate from the curriculum as much as I could I mean, in order to kind of engage in the things that they were already curious about and excited about. And so, but it did get to a point where I realized as they move on to the next grade levels, even when they move on to great teachers, they start to lose that excitement for life. And so I realized like that's where we're stuck, right? A big problem in education is that kids are stuck in the game of school, imitating their teachers instead of thinking for themselves, um, you know, solving textbook problems instead of like, you know, engaging in real world problems where they can make real decisions and, and, you know, experience failure in a positive way where they can keep learning and, you know, just going through the motions instead of really spending their time the best way possible. And so I decided, you know, after after four years of, of teaching, you know, I don't really see my place in the system anymore. I kind of want to explore options outside the system and and, you know, see how um, we can actually create learning experiences that kids are excited to be part of that actually prepare them for this chaotic and ever changing world that we live in. And um, and I realized I couldn't do that inside the system. And so in 2019, I left and I started exploring all the different options and talking to a lot of people. I ended up joining a startup called Synthesis, which we can talk about, um, which is kind of like I went from being on one extreme, you know, the traditional education system to suddenly being like at the edge of innovation something that I had like, whoa, it would just constantly blow my mind, the kind of things that we were experimenting and that we are experimenting with. And I feel very optimistic about the future of education and where we're going. We still have a long way to go, but um, basically all this research and all these questions that I had when I left the school system and, and, and you know, all these things that I've been doing for the past years turned into The Learning Game, which is the book that came out last week that you guys read. And so it's not a scripted book. It's more of a, an invitation to rethink education for yourself and to start asking the kinds of questions that hopefully will make things move in a different direction and return to, you know, the things that, again, make kids excited to learn and how to capitalize on those. So that's a long answer <laughs> to explain who I am and what I'm doing now. That's really cool. And and I think that's where I first heard of you, like probably a couple of years ago when, um, because uh, we had we had Josh on the podcast, and Josh spoke at our annual uh, awards event as well, and he and, and he he was absolutely fantastic, and always been captivated by Josh's story, um, and and just kind of that whole, and you're talking about being at the kind of the the edges of of, of education and, and and exploring and innovating, um, and I think I, I think that's kind of our podcast. Is 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 three guys who are who are captivated by the edges of education, and it's kind of what we do and why we wanted you on for a few years, really, because we 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 want to hear from those at those edges who are experimenting, because I think um, the the kind of circles we mix in the, the traditional education circles, which 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 you know and 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 will have been part of, literally don't know anything about the edges. They don't know. They're so and I, and I often say teachers are so busy with with things in their classrooms they can't look out of the window they can't see what's on the horizon they just there's so much going on mm -hmm. with uh, within their classrooms mm -hmm. um and 
I I kind of see it. I don't know. I don't know how you feel as being somebody who's part of part of synthesis. That that's kind of building momentum and. But I I kind of see it coming to a that there's going to be some kind of um, crux point. I think where we're going to have real alternatives to the the mainstream education. And and someone like me, I went. I grew up on a on an estate in in the northeast of England. Our only choice was we went to the local school at the end of the street. We then went a couple of miles away to the, the high school. Literally the only choice. That school did not have to compete. And most of the education system has never had to deal with competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and competition drives innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of say like schools like Synthesis and we've had um, guys from Sora on and, and, and other schools that are kind of pushing that pushing those boundaries. The more and more you guys start to start to gain momentum and and, and the average parents around the world start to hear about it as a real alternative uh, and the, and competition starts growing and I, I really see us getting to a point where where the education system's gonna have to adapt it's gonna mm-hmm. have to it's gonna have to adapt but i guess my i don't really have a question so i'm gonna think of a question now but uh <laughs> i guess what's it like to be within that environment where you are kind of you're you're seeing uh from from within uh, innovation happening, um, that kind of that non-linear innovation where you, you're trying to change education. And, and I guess it's it's the epitome of your book, really. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see this going? How do you see it being fulfilled? Is it, is it always going to be a niche area? Or do you see it kind of becoming a, a, a more of an al- a mainstream alternative? Yeah, so, so this is an interesting question. And I actually... Um, so I actually think a little bit different from you in terms of like what's going to happen with the actual education system. Like, and again, happy to be wrong about this. I hope I'm wrong about this, but I actually don't think that um, traditional school systems are going to go anywhere. At least not, you know, while we're around. Um, and and the reason is because you know the, the more research I do and the, the, and the you know I go back back way back and you start to kind of like see how this works and and why are things the way they do and who's making the decisions and who's coming up with this curriculums and you start to notice all the bureaucracy and and mm-hmm. how much you know and apologies because my my headphone keeps falling off but um how much of you know politics influence what's going on at least a lot in the united states and and the reality is that um most parents right now you know they they have to work and they have to drop their kids off somewhere that's Mm. quote unquote safe and i say quote unquote because that has been changing a lot unfortunately recently but um and so and so you know right now saying you know there's all all these alternatives they do require a little bit more of engagement on the parents side and a lot of families are not there and so that's one thing and the other thing is like I said, it's it's a very old entity, and there's a lot of forces within it, and a lot of um, things that are that, that I just I, I find it really hard for it to move in a different direction. I find it really hard for it to be sort of reformed. I feel like the only option is for us to create an alternative system that sort of goes in parallel and create what you were saying, Dan, that competition. But it's sort of like I feel like it's always going to be there. So hopefully I'm wrong. Um, but that's sort of like where I've come to um, with the information that I have. Right yeah, now. I kind of I kind of take the. I spend a lot of my times in traditional schools mm-hmm. trying to convince them to change. So I, I've had to adopt an optimistic mindset that something will change. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, my, you know, that's the angle I'm coming from. It's funny because when I say like, oh, look at all the industries and how much they've changed in the past 200 years. And yet you look at education and it's pretty much the same. And some people are like, no, like look at the smart boards and look at the iPads and look at all that technology. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not innovation. You know, you're mm. just kind of grabbing a little bit of tech and adding it to the classroom. The results are pretty much the same. Like maybe the teacher's job is a little bit easier because she has this app where it's easy to track students or Maybe the kids, you know, can memorize faster some of the content for the test because they have this like adaptive apps. And so, but we're not really changing the root of the problem. So Mm. I think that, you know, civilization advances only to the extent that people learn how to think for themselves and how to work collaboratively to solve complex problems. And so the lack of an education system that nurtures and teaches these things, it's therefore one of our primary bottlenecks, right? And I, I, I don't think that that again, that's going to change. Like maybe, yes, they will start adopting some of the things that 
educators outside the system are doing that they see that are, you know, and we can talk about, you know, the AI tutors that are out there. I think that those will make their way into classrooms, for example. So I think that they will continue to add on stuff, but I don't think that they're necessarily fundamentally going to change. And so I think that what we need to do is really create a system from the ground up, rethinking education from first principles, which is something I talk about in my book a lot, right? Which means just like going back to the root of, and Josh, who you've had, who's one of the educators that I admire the most, um, he talks very well about this. It's like, we need to go back to asking the right kind of questions. Like, like what makes kids excited to learn? Like, what's the mm -hmm. best way to spend their time? What do we know about kids and how they learn, right? We know that they are actually, um, you know, enthralled with um, challenges and complexity, even though in school we hear the opposite, right? And so we know that they, they, they want the real thing, right? They don't want watered down um, word problems in textbooks. Like, they want to actually make real decisions and, and sort of like shoulder the consequences of those decisions and ask the right kind of questions and like all these things. And so how can we then create learning experiences that nourish and that, you know, cultivate these skills that come naturally to kids? And so that's what we're doing at Synthesis. We're trying to, you know, create a parallel K through 12 system um, that, you know, one remarkable product at a time. And so originally when we started off, um, and, and I'm going through the story because that's sort of like where I'm experiencing the innovation happening right now. Um, it was back in 2014 and you guys had Josh and he probably told the story about how Elon Musk was like, you know, my kids are, he was very discontent like all of us with the traditional education system. He was like, my kids are not learning how to think for themselves, how to problem solve. Like I, I really want um, to start a school from scratch that um, kids have agency over their learning, that they get to question everything that instead of like putting them into great, can you guys hear me? Yep. Instead of putting them into grades and, um, you know, and segregating them by age, they're actually all together learning from each other, solving problems. And then once they need certain tools, then you provide them with the tools and the, and the knowledge because they are already craving it in order to solve these problems. And so it was a very different way of thinking about education. And so he hired Josh, who was the best, Josh Don, who was the best teacher at the school and who he saw like this guy gets it. And together they built this amazing school called Ad Astra in the SpaceX um, campus. And so um, it was it was a lab school. They did things very differently. It was great because they did not have to adhere to all the, you know, curriculums and standards and assessments and all these things that put like this pressure to do things differently. Um, and so it was really remarkable what they built and the things that the kids were doing. And there was this one particular class called Synthesis, um, which was sort of the magic of Ad Astra, where kids were um, solving the simulations, which were um, like real world problems. And they were very complex, very challenging. There was a lot of competition and, you know, you had to work in teams, but compete against each other. And kids really had to figure things out for themselves. They did not have rules. They did not have, you know, they did not know the rules. They did not have instructions and it was like challenging. So they just had to really figure it out for themselves, which is a skill that's super important in the real world. And it taught them how to, you know, get things wrong and fail, but then use that as part of the learning process. And so it was remarkable. The students were so into it. And a lot of different people from around the world would travel to check out what was happening there. And so there was this one guy called Chrisman Frank, who's now the, the CEO of Synthesis and the other co-founder. When he went to visit, he was like, there's no way that only the 48 kids that go to this school have access to this kind of education. How can we leverage technology and put this online so that kids all over the world can have access to something like synthesis that teaches them the collaborative problem solving skills that they're going to need and the communication skills and leadership skills that they're going to need in the real world. Like that's the kind of education we should be investing on. And so um, and so with the pandemic, they were able to grab synthesis and put it online. And that's when they were like, okay, now we need somebody um, a voice in the alternative education space that can help us spread the word about what we're doing. And so they reached out to me um, and I fell in love with the product. When I saw, you know, after being a teacher and seeing how disengaged students were and suddenly, you know, the kids here were at the edge of their seats. You had eight-year-olds speaking like they were 18-year-olds and using this vocabulary words and this, you know, they knew when to lead, they knew when to sit down and listen, you know, they knew how to delegate and they made mistakes constantly, but they were not discouraged by it. They were taking risks and, and just the level of conversation like they seemed like CEOs of companies talking and I'm not exaggerating. So I was like, I've never seen anything like this. Like, imagine if if more kids had access to this kind of thing, you know, where you're working with kids from all over the world that bring in different perspectives like that's the kind of things that they're going to be doing in the future. Right. And so I, I was hooked. And since then, um, I've, I've joined I joined them as one of the founding members at the very beginning. And and since then, we've been working on, you know, adding more simulations. And then this year we launched our newest product, which is the Synthesis Tutor. Um, and 
wow. <laughs> like I, that's what really, um, I'm like, wow, like, like we're very, you know, this is what the future of education looks like. So basically we've known for, you know, in so many years that the best way to learn is through one-on-one -on -one tutoring. And it's always been sort of like the holy grail of education technology to try and find how to use, how to leverage technology so that every kid can have their one-on-one -on -one tutor. Now it's very, very complicated to do that. Um, and so I feel like we're finally somewhere where, so the way we've done it, and, and, and I know that there are a few um, other folks that are working on digital tutors, but what I really, really like about the one that we're building is that it feels like you're talking to a human and you feel like you're learning from a human. And you know, me as a teacher, like I coming from a teaching background, I was a little bit skeptical when I heard about, you know, oh, we're gonna have a, a digital tutor that's gonna teach kids the hardcore academics because of the simulations that we have um, are teaching them the soft skills they need, but what about the hardcore academics? So we're gonna teach them math and engineering and like all the STEM subjects and then go into literacy, et cetera. I was skeptical because I was like, you know, I, I you know, teachers are sort of like the cornerstone of learning. Like a, a kid needs to feel like there's a caring adult on the other side in order for learning to happen. I just don't know how they would be engaged with a computer. Well, it turns out that um, the way we've done it, 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 it's we found we started with math and we found this phenomenal educator. His name is Dr. Tanton, James Tanton. He's he has a Ph.D. from Princeton. He has written 26 books in math. He's one of the ambassadors of the math in, in America, of mathematics in America. Um, and he's just so passionate about his craft. And he's a good educator because, you know, there are two different things. right? You can be a content expert um, or you can be a good teacher or you can be both where it happens to be that he's both. And when I met him and when I heard him talking about math and when I started to see the lessons that I was like, this is the kind of teacher that I wish my kid had. And this is the kind of teacher I wish, you know, that makes you excited about math and it makes math relevant, right? And it makes everyone believe that they can do math because they can, right? But when it's taught the right way. And so what we did is we've recorded him for hours and hours and hours and captured his mannerisms, his examples, his stories, you know, his jokes, um, everything. And to the point where that that digital tutor that we have, it feels like Dr. Tanton. Like even when he's using it to talk, he's like, sometimes I get scared because it's like sometimes even better than me because, you know, it picks up on everything and it just does it a little bit better than a human. And so again, and when we started testing it with kids, it was incredible because the biggest feedback we got from parents was like, they really feel like it's a teacher. They call him Dr. Tanton and they're like, you know, he or she or depending on like, because you can choose different voices. And and so um, so that was remarkable. It was the first time that I was like, wow, this I, I forget that this is not a real human. I feel like it's Dr. Tanton. So that's one thing. But then the can other I, thing Can is, I just say, Anna, before you move on, I, I try, I, I've had a try of uh, the iTunes the and, and I found it absolutely phenomenal. So I was- Binary like, numbers? I did the, yeah, I did the binary numbers and I was like, I know it's designed for like eight year olds, but I was, I was hooked. I'm 37 right. and I was hooked. I was, yes. and I, I learned so much from it because, and, and I, and I remember thinking, why didn't nobody teach me this at school? Like I was at school in the late nineties. So that would have been really useful if somebody had taught me about binary numbers. Totally. Totally. Um, but yeah, I, I learned so much from it and, and I'm 37, mm -hmm. not eight year old. So yeah, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so and, and, and there are many things that are interesting about like one of the things that I was like surprised was that, I mean, all the apps that I used to teach math in school had these characters and the points and, you know, the dragons and the coins and da da da. And that's what, you know, engaged the kids like the kids wanted to come back and use that app because of all this like extrinsic elements. But when the math got really hard, which eventually gets really hard, you know, those extrinsic motivators were not enough to keep kids going through the hard math. And so that's one thing. And the other thing is, it kind of um, removed the, the, the whole point of learning math, which is not to get a coin or a reward after it in order to, you know, play a little game or get, go to the piggy store, but rather so that you can, you know, solve problems in the real world and apply it to the real world and see how math connects to other subjects and how it's all around us, et cetera, et cetera. With the tutor, what you notice is we don't have the colors or the characters or like any of that. Like we don't have all those like pointsification, right? Which some people call gamification, which is not. And so what it does is kids are motivated to keep using it and they and they go through the entire thing super quickly so one of the things we're trying to do is add content fast it's not that easy but because kids are really going fast through it but it's because they are excited that they're finally understanding math and that they're seeing how math or, or how what they're learning they can apply it right away and something we know about kids is that if they cannot see 
They, can, they only want to learn and they only absorb what they can use right away in the real world. Knowledge decays really quickly. And so if we're teaching them things that may or may not be relevant in the future when they graduate, this and that, you've lost them. We know that that does not work. And so what I find fascinating is that they know like, oh, I'm learning this and I can apply it this afternoon. So I want to keep going. Or you know what? I've always been told that I'm terrible at math, but not really. I'm actually getting this and this is really interesting and so on and so on and so forth. And, and that's what I love because those are the extrinsic elements of learning that I think that are durable and that I think really matter. And so that's one thing. And the other thing that makes me so excited is um, that if we're able to really, you know, do this for every subject um, and, and, and do it in this really, you know, thoughtful way where we're, we're teaching the right things and we're teaching it at the right pace and, and kids have that like forever patient teacher that can stay with you forever until you finally get, you know, that concept, which is something that as a teacher, I could not do in school. I had so many kids that did not grab something in my lesson, but I had to move on. I had 30 kids. I, I, I couldn't, you know, stop everything to go to every kid. But now, so as a result, kids would like move on to the next thing and they had all these gaps in their knowledge. Well, that doesn't happen with the digital tutor because the digital tutor will stay with you until you get it, right? And it won't tell you the answer, but it will walk you through until you get to the right answer. And it does it in a way that's not discouraging. It won't give you a grade or a red mark or, you know, these things that are like, you know, they, they don't make you want to keep trying. It does it in a way that encourages you to keep going. And I was, I was posting a video today about feedback and the importance of assessment. Like, what's the whole point of assessment if it's not to give you feedback to improve and know what are the things that you need to get better on. And I feel like that's what the tutor is doing. And again, we're at the very early stages and it has a few bugs and the kids sometimes call us out for the bugs, which is great. But I feel like we're onto something, you know, um, and, and I'm, I'm feeling very optimistic because going back to what I was saying, if we're able to really do this for every subject, imagine like kids being able to go through the hardcore academics in a very efficient and fun way in the morning, in like an hour a day or even less. And then they have the rest of the day to actually engage in things that matter, to be kids, to play around. Or I think, you know, Ben was saying like this summer we had a lot of downtime. Downtime is great for creative ideas. Kids barely have downtime nowadays, right? With this packed schedules and being in school for eight hours. And then they go after school and they have all this adult led activities. When do they have downtime? That's the moment where they can actually like engage in the things that they're interested in and get bored. And that's when, you know, new ideas come into place. And so I feel like if we're able to get the academics out of the way, in, a, in an effective way in the morning than kids or in the afternoon, depending on what, what kind of kid you are, when you want to learn. Kids have the rest of the day to do other things, right, that, that, that actually matter instead of being stuck in school for eight hours, quote unquote, learning, because we all know that's not happening. And so those are some of the things that I'm super excited that I'm seeing in the other side of the spectrum. I think there's a, there's a couple of points. And I, I love the model on synthesis. You know, <laughs> when we first met Josh and everything else, I think I've been involved in the development of some some online schools and, and um and what i've seen is that in england um the dfe so the department of education has created the accreditation for online education as soon as i saw that i panicked and worried because i was like how do they know if they're the ones who are creating the school system that already exists um how how do they know what what the online school should be and I think the reason why synthesis and, and, and the success and the, uh, in terms of my eyes, not everybody's opinion, and the ones that I, I think will, will lead the way, is they've moved away from that whole centralised, and you mentioned it in the book, the centralisation of the learning and the reason that schools are there. It runs that where we talk about behind the scenes of the centralisation of education. How do we take this model of technically a, and is a private organization and model that or allow the world to remove move away from decentralization and, and kind of create their own synthesis of whatever that means away from the current shackles of the system that uh, we have in the bricks and mortar of, of learning yeah how do you do that Right. So I, I guess that's 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 the question, right? Like, what do we um, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, online learning. Um, it, it's, you know, when they think of online learning, they think of what we saw during the pandemic. And that's not real online learning. You know, what happened during the pandemic was we were trying to problem solve from one day to another. Nobody knew what was going on in the world. And it was just like, OK, let's grab what we're doing in brick and mortar schools. And they put this put the schools online. And that's basically what you did. You grabbed what you were doing in the classroom and we put it online. 
of course, if kids were not paying attention and not engaged in the classroom with the kids and the teacher, how are they going to be engaged looking at a computer for seven hours a day or five hours a day or whatever, doing exactly the same thing? Of course, that does not work. And that is not online education. Online education done right is when you build something with a digital audience in mind and an online audience in mind. And then you do things and you structure things in a way that are conductive for learning online. And it looks very different from what happens in a classroom naturally, right? Like this is a very different medium. And so when you start hearing things like you were saying, Steve, like, oh, we, we have all this external forces trying to come in and standardize things and 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 regulate things and, and i feel like that's when it becomes a problem and and you know i was doing another podcast yesterday with the school principal of many different like schools in the u.s and and you know he was all about well how do we do this at a state level and how do we do this with you know 200 school and i was like i think that that's part of the problem you know when you try to and I understand why we did it in the past, right? You had to educate an entire population and, you know, you know, to fight for the war and then, you know, to work at factories and, and managers and the assembly line. But now things are very different. We need independent thinkers. We need creative problem solvers. We need kids that chart their own paths. We need people that are not all looking at the same problem the same way, which is what they teach you in school, but rather being able to step back and look at it from different angles and come up with novel ideas, not necessarily like strive for correctness, which is what we learn in school. And so for that, we need to design something very, very different. And I think that when you try to standardize that and when you try to you're like kind of going back to the same problem. You know, we're all different. We all learn differently. We all have different styles and different, we mature at different rates. So when you try to standardize things, I feel like that's part of the problem, right? Um, um, Cause you, 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 you kind of miss the point that it has to have room for wiggle, right? <laughs> like they all go. And, 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 I, and I think that part of it is cause we're so used to order and organizing things and having sort of like you know but but in reality learning is messy and it's chaotic and 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 it goes one way and the other and, and we need to get comfortable with that like the faster we get comfortable knowing that we're not going to control everything and that and that you know everything's going to look different like i feel like that's when true learning happens and that's something that educators are not quite used to it's it's again it's uncomfortable because you don't have full control but but i feel like i don't know if i'm answering your question steve but i feel like you know that's part of it because, sorry, Ben, I don't know you're going to come in, um, but I, I heard, and I can't remember who said it, and I remember this conversation, I was still in education at the time, um, and somebody said, the problem is we are constantly trying to cultivate our crop. We're constantly trying to put it in rows and grow it in lines and feed it and water it in exactly the same way every, way every single day. And, and what we need to create is a, a rainforest where outstanding shoots of, of, of practice and, and, and learning take place just you walk in a rainforest if you've ever been there and you just see mm -hmm. you're like well i'm guessing that wasn't there two weeks ago and things are just shooting up and, and the exciting bit of it but the problem is it, across the world we have created crops um yep. in education and we're cultivating over and over again in exactly the same way like we do a harvest mm -hmm. um because that's the way that we do it on mass like we mm -hmm. do production of food and everything else and yeah it worked but how sad that we are treating the development of children and learning in exactly the same way that we um, used to grow food. Totally. And we haven't learned probably from the state of the first harvest and, and education has probably not evolved enough since the first mm -hmm. harvest. Totally. Um, I like that analogy. And mm -hmm. If you want to kick in there. No, I, I think that's absolutely where we're at, that even, even farmers rest fields so that they can replenish and then they can go in again and use them again you can't if you over if you over harvest your yield is going to come and that's what we've done with children and and that comes from testing as well and i know that testing and high stakes testing is a real bugbear having not just eat, read, read your book everything that you see online that, that that people are talking about like yourself anna are saying that high stakes testing is one of the one of the challenges that really is cultivating that crop and churning it and churning it and churning it and it just makes those lines totally straight that um that don't need to be straight it's interesting i have a 12 year old and a nine year old and i asked them both yesterday in preparation for this i said if you had a choice to go to school or to learn at home around things that you're interested in and that you have control over and that you can explore what would you rather do my 12 year old said i'd want to go to school and I said, why? She went, because all my mates are there. Um, and then I said, but do you, if, you, if, if, you, if you could still see your friends, but you could do that, would it change it? 
Uh, she said, oh, maybe. But my nine-year-old absolutely, without even a hesitation, said, I would learn my own way and do the things. Because I, I, find, I find school really easy, Dad. And mm. that was the conversation she was talking about. It wasn't that it's too hard. It's that she says, I have to do the same thing as everybody else. And I... I said, I don't, I don't mean being rude, Dad, but like I already know what that is. Um, and she said yesterday um, she had a spelling test, and that's obviously a regular cultivation of a crop. We need to teach kids how to spell. Um, and she had two quest- two words on it uh, that, well, two words that just come up. So one of them was brandish and one of them was fictitious. And I said to her, what do they mean? She went, well, I don't know. I just know how to spell them. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness me. Like, this is the problem right now. We're teaching kids how to spell words yep. that they don't even know what they mean. Yep. What is the point? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I kind of I think this really ties into this idea of um, the problem with testing, the problem with schooling for testing, the, mm-hmm. the, the idea of memorization for the sake of passing a test as opposed mm-hmm. to deep learning. And I know that you speak at that quite a lot in the book, don't you? Yeah, because... Wow, that's such a great example. And, you know, all this, like when you were talking about spelling, all this, all this like memories came back when I was a teacher and, 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 and oh my God, like, like spelling is one of those subjects that I, I really don't understand why we spend some time drilling. But um, so, so it's interesting because I, I was very curious. One of the things that I, that, that was very alarming to me when I was teaching was the kind of environment that, um, that was created during test prep season and during testing season in the schools. I mean, it was it was unhealthy left and right for teachers, for parents, for students. Like the whole thing seemed so messed up, yet everyone just went through the motions. And so if before test season started, we did not quite have enough time to focus on the things that kids were already interested in because we had to follow these lessons. Imagine during test prep season, which is basically the only thing you talk about, and, and, and you're telling kids, you know, these are high stake tests, right? And you need to do really well because depending on this, like everything revolves around this test, right? Kids enter gifted programs or enter remediation groups or move on to the next grade level or go to college or, you know, schools are competing based on the results. Like everything revolves around these tests. And I was like, how did this even happen? Because Originally, if you go back, when we started using tests around the 1960s, right, like after World War II, after the Industrial Revolution, just as a way to sort of have a benchmark and sort of, you know, just have like a base of where kids, you know, are in general and like a touch point. And I think that that was fine, you know, like when you use it like that to have a general sense of where kids are because they're not really that assertive, um, I think that's fine. Like I think there is a place for assessment in general. However, the problem has become that, um, you know, with time, there's been a massive increase in standardized testing to the point where schools revolve around these tests. And the people that are creating the tests are the same companies that are creating the lesson plans and the curriculums. And so we're basically teaching for these tests. And when you look at these tests, oftentimes you realize that it's not even common knowledge that you need in professions nowadays, right? Maybe for professions back then, but not even. And so It's really concerning that we are cramming all this information and spending all this precious time where kids could be learning about other things that are actually valuable and then putting all this stress on kids, which sometimes it's, you know, again, it's concerning, right? And it has like, you know, really unintended consequences. Um, And then sort of what are we teaching kids? What's the underlying thing that we're teaching kids? That they're learning to pass a test. They're not learning for the sake of learning or to improve it. No, they're learning to pass a test. What I noticed was that oftentimes after they took the test, you had two groups of students. You had the students who passed the test with flying colors, and then they had no idea how to apply this to an open-ended problem. And I was like, why are we celebrating you with an A? And you know, you feel so proud of yourself if you can't apply this knowledge. Like, this is not good. And then you had the kids that you knew that they actually knew the material because they can put it into practice, they can talk about it, they can, but they're just not good test takers. Or that day they had a bad morning or they had a bad night or whatever, and they did not perform well in this test. And so it's like, it's so unfair that they get penalized for, you know, j- just for that. And so I started to wonder why, if we know that kids learn differently, if we know that kids showcase what they learn in different ways, how is it that we have only one way to assess them and that this has so much weight on, on it, right? And so, and then I started thinking too, like, what's, you know, w- what's really accountability? Like, what matters, right? And do we really think that these tests are measuring the kind of competence that you need to be successful in the real world? No. Do we think that this massive increase in tests has, you know, closed the achievement gap between, you know, different um, demographics? No. If anything, it's made it worse, like a lot worse. You have kids falling through the cracks everywhere. And I think that, you know, 
we've missed the point of an assessment. Like an assessment should be a way to show you what you don't know yet and so that you can improve on it. So the whole you know, attitude around an assessment should be positive, should make kids want to go back to this thing that they got wrong and then improve at it. But that's not what we're doing. We're scaring them. We're putting this marks that we're telling them like, you know, you are, this is going to be in the in, in your transcripts for a long time. And so kids, kids, kids don't want to take risks. They don't want to try things out because they feared that they're not going to, you know, perform well in this test. And so I feel like, you know, this is kind of one of the biggest problems in education right now. And and I don't necessarily have a clear cut answer for what the solution is. But in the book, I talk about, you know, what if we lowered the stakes, right? Because we know that the most genuine parts of learning happen when kids are, you know, exploring their interest. And, you know, like I was when, when I was a little girl, not worried about being judged and about a grade, but just kind of like just doing your own thing. And high stake tests get in the way of that real learning. And it's really hard to measure that real learning, right? And so what if we lowered the stakes? If we had tests, but for like just as one measure of one thing and then had a bunch of other alternatives, right? And what if we brought in the options? If you look at what a lot of homeschoolers do is that they submit a portfolio at the end of the year to their local school board that includes, you know, business plans and songs and projects and, you know, maybe some tests. And they have a variety of ways that they can showcase what they're learning. It motivates kids to actually want to do it. It makes them feel competent, which, by the way, is super important, right? It's, it's sort of one of those things that makes you want to keep learning. If you don't feel that you're smart, because, you know, you don't get to showcase what you know in the way that suits you in school, then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you don't even want to try anymore. And you see this with a lot of kids. And so homeschoolers tend to be more engaged in their learning because they have more agency, they have more choices, and they have more ways that to actually show what they're learning. And so I propose lowering the stakes and broadening the options and finding better and, and, and more ways to assess kids. And so this is a very, you know, nuanced topic. And of course, that it's hard to do it at scale, like everything. But I feel like having those conversations would kind of get us walking in a different direction. You know, the madness that's going on right now, uh, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And the results are terrible. So I don't even know why we're still in this, like, you know, doing what we're doing. Yeah, it's it's crazy because we are we're continuing a system, and we kind of know why it exists. Is because schooling is pretty much um, it's babysitting. I've talked about this before, so that parents can go out and work and maintain the economic model that the the, the means of production. We know that that's part of it. We know that high stakes testing makes it easy uh, for the administrators to be able to get a benchmark and be able to see performance over time. Portfolios. We've been, I, I can't I can't even begin to account the amount of times we've talked about that variety of assessments on the podcast and suggesting that high stakes tests are not the only option, mm -hmm. yet that's d difficult to do because you can't mark them at scale for mm -hmm. millions, like you just said. So we, we've got a system that perpetuates it. And then, you, like you said earlier, there's that bureaucracy and the the uh, the organisations that hold the power that, that want to maintain the status quo. I think... Interestingly, that then ties into what what we do in school and what the the, the game of school has become, like you, that you talk about in the book, has become a set of rules, a set of you must follow this, a way of teaching, a curriculum you must cover. A good friend of ours in the UK, Bob Harrison, says um, about everybody talking about delivering content and you, you deliver food, you don't deliver content. And it's, it, it's no, nothing to do with... Um, that's not schools about, but then you create these whole sets of rules. And the stat that blew me away this week, um, as I was as I was reading your book, was that one that that, that children are um, there's so there's more rules in school than there are for convicted criminals in prison. Um, and and I, when I thought about that, I thought to myself, it absolutely is right. What shoes they wear, what haircut they have, what clothes they wear, wh which side of the corridor they work on, they walk on, what colour pen they can write in, like which wh where they've got to put the date and title, like, and it's just mental that we're just trying to create a straitjacket way of of delivering to kids one size fits all model. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, as I think it was Dan that said this a few a few months ago, uh, one size fits all actually means one size fits none. It just doesn't work that way, does it? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's broken, isn't it? Totally. And you know what's so interesting? That um, if you give kids choices, 
And if you give kids autonomy over their learning, which is actually not that hard to do, right? Like choices can be simple, as simple as what do you want? How do you want to learn? Like standing up, sitting down in the couch, in the floor, or what do you want to read? Or, you know, who do you like? If you give kids choices, you suddenly, you, you know, kids are, teachers are struggling so much to capture kids' attention. And they're like always complaining, like they're not paying attention. They're not paying attention. And it's like, it's not the kid's fault. It's literally the way that we're trying to, like you said, deliver this content. But if you suddenly empower them and we're like, no, you are going to help me find this knowledge and see how we put it into practice, or you give them choices, suddenly all the behavior issues start to go down. All the unengagement starts to go. You know why? Because that's sort of the way that kids are meant to learn. When you give them choices and when you give them autonomy, which are two things that are seriously lacking in schools like all the things that you mentioned I hadn't even I didn't even remember but yes we we would make them write with specific pens and and in the in certain parts of the notebook and how how long their essays had to be like five pages but what if they can say what they say in two pages more effectively or what if they want to say like all these parameters and rules really get in the way and hinder the whole learning process and so it's really concerning because we have you know, kids that are graduating from high school, which are with a bunch of academic junk because they don't even know what to do with this information or, or you know, it's not even relevant or they've forgotten most of it, but they have no idea what they're really good at because they've spent all their years hearing what they're not good at and how to remediate that. Not like, you know, how to double down on your strengths and how to make you amazing at the things that you already like doing and are good at it. They have no idea how to contribute to the real world because we've kept them in this constrained environment for 18 years. And then we're suddenly like, oh, you're a teen here you are out in the wild figure it out and it's like of course they crash and of course it because they've never had an opportunity to contribute or a lot of kids to contribute to the real world or make real decisions you know or you know they haven't learned how to be independent because everything's like so watered down or they don't know when what to do when there's not an adult telling you you know you need to do this and this and this or here are the instructions like the real world doesn't come with instructions so it's funny that we you know we do all these things in order to prepare them for the real world and really what we're doing is the complete opposite you know they're graduating from school not knowing what they want to do what they're good at and not even knowing how to really survive in the world. And so it's it's just very frustrating. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I became more optimistic once I left the system and I started to talk to people that are building in the alternative education space. And, and you know, I, I feel like we, like I said, we still have a long way to go, but I, um, but, but, you know, we're, we're moving on the right direction and there are people working on the right kind of thing. And I don't think that there's like one thing that's going to work. Absolutely not. Like I'm, I'm all about diversity of approaches and different methods and it depends on the kids and the families and their needs. And so the more variety we have, not just in assessment, but like in everything, I think the better, right? Like parents and families should have the choice of how they want to educate their kids and should have the proper guidance, you know, not just delegate all of their kids' education to a school system and blindly believe that, you know, um, what they're doing is right. And if you look at all the pressure that schools have created because a lot of it is not even backed by research. You know, parents are going crazy thinking that their kids need to be reading by first grade. And then if they're not, then they're, they have a problem. And so, you know, the kid is listening to this thing like, oh, I don't know how to read. So I have a problem. When in reality, there's no data that supports that kids should be reading by seven. There's a lot of data that supports that everyone matures at different paces and at different rates and that you have kids that are ready to read by three, some that are ready to read by 12. And so you know, uh, but but that's not the message that we get in school. And so you have, again, parents going crazy. And that's sort of the message that the kids are hearing. And so we're all running in this treadmill that doesn't make sense, you know. And, and when you start, when you stop and you start questioning that, I feel like that's the first step. And hopefully that that's that's one of the main goals of my book, right? It's not to for you to leave, like finish reading the book and know exactly what you need to do, but 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 at least you're starting to ask the right questions. And I feel like we need more people asking questions, right? Because there's, yeah, a lot of things don't make sense. Yeah, I, I'm with you, I'm with you every way. And, and I, and I one of the, one of the main issues I, I, I think I have with this, cause I'm, I'm, I've got a two and a three year, no, sorry, they're four and three now. They've, they've, they've just had their birthdays. Um, and that's really bad, isn't it? Uh, the <laughs> uh, and and so I, I I start to to think, and I was I was talking to somebody the day, um, and and who's who's in this space as well, who who explores the future of education, and I and I said to him, um, it was it was Ian, uh, uh, Stephen, Ben, uh, no Ian, he was on the, he was on the last podcast before summer, and and I said to him, I said, knowing what we know about education. How can I just send my own kids to the the local school? I said, 
and I, to be honest, I, to be quite frank, I said, we know it's bullshit, don't we? We know it's bullshit. So what do we, what, what do I do? And, and I feel like, I feel like we're at a, we're at a cusp of, of these types of skills like synthesis developing and, and it's still early days. And I'm like, do I experiment with my own kids and get them to, to do some synthesis, get them to do some Sora, get them, do you know what I mean? Like, do I, and, 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 and there's part of me which is really torn because I'm thinking trusted school down the road, get them through their their exams <laughs> or experiment with the with with them. Um that's one that that's that's one side. And I and I think the other side is um is the equity. So and, and I suppose it's the same. It's the same in America as well, isn't it? We over here, we've we've got private independent schools where if you've got money, you you'll you'll pay for education for your for your children. Um, will will kind of these decentralized alternatives um, cause a further gap in equity between parents who can afford to send their their children to these eccentric, and I mean that in the literal sense, the eccentric schools on the edge rather than just to the the local secondary school where they that's how it's always been done i yeah so sorry i don't i a cut the first one was just a thought really but the second i suppose my main question is do, do you worry about the equity issue here about how we could be forcing forcing more of a gap between those who have and those who don't have yeah so um and again i i've i've, I've thought a lot about this and my conclusion is you know what we're doing right now if you look at the gaps they are, you know, I, I don't think they can't get any worse. Like I was reading some stats yesterday saying that 1% of black students in fourth grade at a state level in the U.S. are performing at grade level in math and 2% are performing at grade level in reading. Like those numbers are just, you know, like I don't even have a word for that. So, so what we're doing right now is clearly not working, right? And so I feel like, you know, first going to your first thought, and, and it's a very valid thought, and even I have it, um, you know, and, and every parent that I talk to thinks about this, um, you know, wh what if, right? What if I try something different and then, and then it doesn't work? Well, here's the thing. We know that the current thing is not working. And so, well, for most kids, right? And again, I make the exception because there are some kids that actually are perfectly caught for the system. And I always talk about my husband, who's like the perfect candidate. He did perfectly in school. He loved it. His teachers loved it. And it was just, it's the way he learns. So, of course, there's some kids that benefit from the school system. But again, it's like one very small percentage of kids that if your kid is there, great. And your kid is excited to go to school and you see that they're learning and you don't need to look at their grades. You, you can tell if your kid is learning, if they come back from school and they want to tell you about all these things and you see them excited to want to keep learning outside of school. If that's the case, then you know, you know, you're fine. But if that's not the case, which happens to be for a lot of kids, then, you know, keeping them there is really just perpetuating the problem. So finding alternatives and trying out alternatives. And, and, you know, if it doesn't work, you can always pivot and you can always try something different. I feel like you're not going to damage your child. And again, I, I need to remind this to myself, right? Um, if you don't put them in this environment where we have for so many years believed that it's where learning happens. Learning happens everywhere. And if you give them the right space and the right resources and access to a community and access to other kids that are independent thinkers. And, you know, if you're able to do that, then I, I don't think you can go wrong, right? Um, and, and always remembering that the parent is always the best teacher that any kid will ever have. And I, I have a whole chapter in the book called Skin in the Game that talks about, you know, how, how parents really need to be responsible for their kids' education. And this doesn't mean that you need to be their teacher and teach them all the subjects. It just means that you need to take responsibility and, and shoulder the things that go right and the things that don't go right, right? And so, and, and you need to figure out what to do with your kids' education, whatever that is. And so, um, so that's one thing I feel like, like we should, we should always give it a try and then we can mm -hmm. pivot and try something else. And then if you tried a bunch of different things and nothing's working, then you can always go back to the school system, right? Like that's, th that, that's not going to be an issue. So that's one thing. And then to the other thing, going back to, you know, things are really not looking good for different demographic demographics. And I feel like, like everything, you know, like Tesla, like you need to start really high level. And, you know, at the beginning, it's going to be at, at least I'm, t I'm speaking on behalf of synthesis, right? Like as we're building the product, of course, it's going to be a higher price, but we've been 
as the product, you know, we, we, we perfect the product and we open it up to the mass and we give more, like our goal is to give access to every single child in the world at an accessible level. And so I think that um, maybe at the beginning while we're building, it may be more expensive, but I think that eventually it's going to be a more effective way to teach and learn and a more accessible for everyone. Then a lot of people are like, oh, but it's online. You need Wi-Fi. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> Wi-Fi is cheaper and it's becoming more mainstream and universal and even in remote areas around the world. Eventually, the whole world is going to be interconnected and having access to an iPad or a computer is going to be way easier than it is now. And it's going to be way cheaper than enrolling your kid in a school, a, a good school, quote unquote. Right. And so, again, I don't have a clear cut answer for this, but I actually I actually think that um, more kids are going to benefit from the alternative options than, you know, than, than, than the actual schools that we have right now. I, 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 ben, I think we were having this conversation links back to the swimming and the, the cost of, of being a parent um, in terms of the clubs and the things that they go through. And I think um, my little boy is uh, 20 months this month um, and uh, he's just starting football, Diddy Kicks. Um, uh, I'm, I'm hoping he's, he's, he's my retirement is my little boy. Uh, I've told him he's not allowed to play left back or centre half. Like I played centre half and, and look at the state of my nose. Uh, you know, you never make any money off that. I want him to be a centre forward uh, and, and like Messi or or Ronaldo and, and, and bringing in some big bucks. But um, I was astounded. Uh, uh, maybe it's because I'm a Yorkshireman and I'm tight. I know if you don't know Yorkshiremen, we drink out of dirty puddles. We we're the tightest men. We can count our change in our pockets. Uh, but I was looking at uh, this, this football. Sorry, I'm, I'm looking at Anna's face. And she's, I cannot believe you just said that. What is going on here? What, what have I agreed to do? No, no, no. I love learning about different things. Uh, but I was looking at it and I was like, oh, I love my son, but it's very expensive. And I was looking and it's like, you have to pay your, your, your fees for every week, every 30 minutes, every, every Saturday that he's going to be going. Uh, I have to pay for a football kit. I have to... Um, I have to pay for registration and an affiliation to a club and to a league and everything else. And I was like, there's an upfront cost straight away. And I was like, I looked at it before I came on and I was like, it's more expensive than synthesis. Just to put it into context, actually, we make decisions for the love of our children on a regular basis for the development of sporting activities and different clubs and different things that we do. And actually, um, when you really consider it, there are people that won't be able to afford it. I get that the world is in a very strange place economically and in a challenging place, but actually if I can, because ultimately I just make a decision whether I send them to gymnastics or whether uh, I do something else. And, and, and that is a consideration for me. I'll be honest mm -hmm. because I'm like, I don't believe in the current education system. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I have to be mindful of, of the job that I do and, and some of the work that I do, but at the same point, I disagree wholeheartedly mm -hmm with what the education system currently stands for in England. Mm -hmm. That's not you being careful, by the way. That is no, not no. you being careful. I, I wholeheartedly disagree. <laughs> no, because you know what? It, beliefs and values lead the way. And my beliefs and values are that I disagree with Agreed. the current status quo of the current education system in England. And I believe there is a better thing. And a better, and if I can make the decision, I want to transform it for everybody. Um, and hopefully synthesis and these online schools and looking at pods and, and pop-ups. I'm, I'm rambling here, but I think mm -hmm. there's a way that actually when we talked about the care of children, those people who, how, how do we support online schooling? Well, in the US and in England, the buses take people to school on a regular basis. They potentially have Wi-Fi on them. What, are they do, what do they do for the rest of the day? They sit empty and they're already hired out. Take them to places. Get kids who don't have Wi-Fi get them into communities, get people learning on a bus if they need a space to be looked after, get a facilitator there at low cost. There is massive ways that we can create pods of learning where people are accessing it online rather than mm -hmm. going to spaces and they're cared for and they're mm -hmm. safe. Mm -hmm. And I know that you touched upon that safe element. Mm -hmm. And I think people need to think outside of their box. And Dan, you talk about the third box on a regular basis because the current system is an iteration of something that mm -hmm. should have died with a dodo. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, tune in next week when Steve launches his bus company. That's going to be a good episode. I did it before I left education <laughs> during COVID. 
uh, we were engaging with bus companies that had Wi-Fi on them because they weren't taking, and we were saying, right, how can we get these out mm-hmm. to kids in, in rural communities and spaces where they didn't have Wi-Fi and they couldn't access learning? We had this whole provision during COVID where we were going to take buses uh, in collaboration with, with with the bus companies that were going to do it. And we were going to put them into those communities because kids didn't have Wi-Fi. It can be done, but the problem is we have to break the status quo of um, people that want to shackle education Mm-hmm. Exam uh, people that are making billions out of education in different ways, and people who love the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't speak often, but I ramble, and I <laughs> and 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 I, I definitely am always honest. I think and and yeah, I, I, that's just the way it is. Beliefs and values synthesis is probably going to be, and that kind of schooling is where my kids are going to go. I'm afraid. Awesome, I'm very happy to hear. It's been a good one. Um, I, I reckon. I, I think I've touched about two points on my notes that I've got here ready from the book. So um, we, we we could have gone on and on and on, but Anna, we we know that you are a busy person. You've you've taken time out of your day for us today, um, and we really appreciate it. We appreciate your book, and uh, we know that we will be giving away ver- uh, copies of this that you've kindly shared with us, uh, giving away um, copies of this book for uh, some of our listeners. So look forward to hearing about what other people have to say about it as well. If you haven't read it already, The Learning Game by Anna Fabrega, it is an absolute must read. Um, I couldn't put it down. It literally was one of those books where I've turned probably 50% of the pages and written scribbled all over it. So um, we love it. Thank you for what, you, what you're what doing, the work that you're doing. And uh, we look forward to having you on for part two at some other point. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. I have my my at Futurist Award at home that I'm oh, great. All, that I'm very proud of. <laughs> so thank you for finally having me. I'm so glad we had this conversation. It was a lot of fun, and I hope we get to do it again. And thank you for your support with my book as well. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. Cheers, Anna. One, two, three.